and welcome to Sunday on the Pod with Casey, Flo, and Rosa. Welcome back to Sunday on the Pod. Sunday on the Pod is a podcast all about musical theatre. However, this podcast isn't just for performers, but it's for anybody who loves musical theatre. Each episode will be covering musicals that some of you may love, some of you might hate, or maybe you've never heard of them before. Either way, we'll be singing and dancing about them. If you didn't already know, we pick a musical and discuss its plot, the show's creators, dissecting specific songs lyrically and musically, delving into any juicy goss from past and present productions, and my personal favourite, putting on our very own casting director hats and choosing a fantasy cast with our magic generator. Woo! Just when you thought it couldn't get any better. For the finale, at the end of each episode, we'll have an interview with a fabulous special guest performer who will then sing us out with a song from the show. You can stream their cover on our Sunday on the podcast album found in our link tree. So what are you waiting for? Sit back and enjoy the pod. Thanks so much everyone out there who's been supporting our little show so far. We absolutely love bringing you our thoughts on our fave and not so fave shows and we would love to keep bringing you more. The best way to support our show is by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and by keeping up with us on socials. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Sunday on the Pod. How are we all on this lovely, lovely Sunday? Good. A bit a bit run down, but we shall persist. <laughs> you know what you need? You need Sunday on the pod. That's going to be I, your medicine. <laughs> I do, I do. That's the best medicine. Casey, tell, tell everyone what you've been up to lately, because you have been a gallivanting lady. I have. So I've literally, like two and a half weeks ago, finished my PGCE. So that's all done and dusted. Um... And then I've literally been off to Switzerland and Paris, which has been amazing. Also, I really enjoyed it. I see a lot of people talking about Paris and being like, oh, it's so overrated. I love that you're like, also, traveling is great. Like, I love that that's that's like what you took from it. You're like, also, why is no one talking about this? Paris is great. There was, there was, there's so much like... (laughs) slagging off of Paris and I was, before I went I was like oh I don't know what to expect I don't know if it's gonna because I went to Belgium and no offense to any Belgians listening but I was so I, so bored I was really bored Belgium was great boring. chocolate they've got good chocolate but I even that, do you know what do you know what really upset me when I went to Belgium little tidbit here I went to a chocolate making workshop because I was in Belgium and then I got there paid an arm and a leg for it and then realized that we were all making dark chocolate and I can't stand dark chocolate so I couldn't even eat it I was making it did it have anything in it did it have like nuts or you could put like little bits in it but they're kind of just like you know they left out little things with like crushed M&Ms and like pretzels Mm, what a shame dark chocolate I know I wish I was sophisticated enough to like dark chocolate but I'm not there yet I'll tell you what, though, the right dark chocolate. Now, this is me, you know, going back on myself, typical, being like, I hate it. Now I love it. <laughs> the right the right dark chocolate. I don't know if anyone at home knows about this. Tony's Chocolone. 
They are, oh, they are doing it right. The light green one with almonds and sea salt, that, it has a special place in my heart. That is delicious. <laughs> that is delicious. <laughs> I think that I like that for the almonds and the sea salt, not necessarily. Me too, absolutely. But it's still very good. I I think dark chocolate for me is one of those things that I have in the cupboard and that's the thing I revert to when I've not got any other chocolate. <laughs> Mm. I'll just have to like dip it into a brew. I just think I like I like a creamy milk chocolate, and yeah. I'm partial to white chocolate as well. I do like white chocolate. Do you remember that advert? I don't know why I'm like remembering it, but I've always thought it was an odd one with Galaxy, where it was like this woman was in her house and she was in like this beautiful like long flowing dress, and she's like, oh, she's in the mood for some chocolate, and she's like running around her house trying to find this. She opens the fridge and she has like a pack kind of like foiled and she opens it oh and, and there's nothing in there and she's so upset and then I think she goes to like a photo box and under her like bed pitch, it's under, under her, her bed, bed. <laughs> and there's pictures of her children and her husband and it's beautiful and then she just unveils there's a galaxy bar and she breaks off like four and, she, and I always thought it was the weirdest advert I'm like well that's advertising advertising is so weird yeah yeah I just always thought that advert was odd also, who's putting, that. which one, is it her husband or her children? Who's putting the chocolate wrapper back in the fridge after, like, after the, it's gone? Because that is bad behaviour. That is criminal. It's like putting you know the milk is, back when it's done. I'll tell you what, my sister, if she's listening to this, she knows. As a kid, she used to eat all of the Ben and Jerry's, put the lid back on, put it back into the freezer... And then, but she'd do it at night. So we had no idea she was doing it. This is so bad. I'm literally outing her. She would do it at <laughs> night when no one knew. The next day after dinner, would be like, oh, we've got some, you know, Ben and Jerry's in the freezer. What a treat. Open it, empty. And she'd be there just like, no comment. She wouldn't even admit. It was so bad. It was so bad. <laughs> That's so funny. I used to go to my grandma's and my uncle used to buy Ben and Jerry's for him and his girlfriend all the time. And I'd always ask if I could have some and they'd be like, no. So what I did when I was a kid is I'd literally sit there and then like pick out all of like the cookie dough chunks. I'd like sit there and pick through it and take out all the cookie dough chunks and then put the ice cream back in the freezer. (laughs) So that when they'd come to eat it, it'd just be plain vanilla ice cream because I'd taken all the chunks out of it. That's cruel. That's clever. That is clever. That's the best bit. That's what I'm like with fish. Fish food's my favourite Ben and Jerry's flavour. And I is it? it. I, oh, I, I like it, but it's very sickly. Which actually, the fishes dark are chocolate. actually dark chocolate. Full circle, full circle moment. <laughs> She's been caught out in a lie. I, I, <laughs> also, I was suspicious <laughs> when you said, "Oh, I've got dark chocolate at home." but it's just something I reach for when I'm not in the mood for anything else. I'm like, why would you have it in your home? Because, no, that's like if somebody's gifted it to me. Like, you know what I mean? If I've got like a bar of chocolate from somebody and gifted yeah. it. It's all the unraveling, keep stacking up. Yeah. <laughs> You're guilty. <laughs> you like dark chocolate. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm glad you remember that advert though, Flo, because it really stuck with me as an advert. I, I remember really weird adverts. Like they're stuck in my head forever. Like there was a really weird one about Febreze and it really annoyed me where it was like, I think it was like a woman. It was always a woman. It was a woman on the toilet. This is a bit 
too much information. She was a woman on the toilet and she clearly like went to the loo and it stank. Um, (laughs) And the advert was about how if you had this Febreze toilet freshener, like people would like you. And it was just like, (laughs) it was the weirdest advert. And it made me so angry that I remember we had this English project where we did Room 101. And my Room 101 was that Febreze advert. That is hilarious that you it's hated so that niche. much. It's so niche. I hated it so much that I was like, right, here's my PowerPoint presentation about why I'd put Febreze into Room 101. I just also I hate just it. rude, like being like, no one's gonna like you if you maybe don't have like the best smell. Like that's a people have other medical issues. Yeah. That is, I'm not a fan of that Febreze. <laughs> I don't like that. I know. Not cool. I don't like the Febreze adverts where they're like. They take someone into a stinky place that they've oh they, yeah and they, they sprayed it through breeze <laughs> and then the woman's like it smells like like freshly done laundry it's amazing <laughs> and then they're like open the blind for and she's like oh my god it's really stinky like it's ridiculous like <laughs> I love Rosa I love how every single episode you uncover like another <laughs> accent that you can <laughs> but none of them are good though that's the thing none of no, them no, are good, good. it's really stinky <laughs> I, oh, I remember God. a really a really weird advert and I must have been really young and it was a little girl and I don't I can't for the life of me remember what it was advertising but she picks up like two cherries and the cherries start singing <laughs> and it goes if you leave me now you'll take away the beat and I was like I can't I'm gonna to have to find out what that it was must be like a cherry juice or like what were those little sweets maybe that were like the red and white swirl oh, oh the, you think of the lollipop were they like camp- camp- campons 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 <laughs> campons Ah, yes, of course. Two little cherries. (laughs) That's gross. I think they were called like Campanias. Campanians. Clearly, their advertisement worked. But it was it was two little cherries going, baby, please. Don't go. <laughs> I've just found it. Okay, it's an advert for three the the mobile network three. I wonder what cherries has to do with them. I don't know. I also, don't is know. anyone on three anymore? Uh, I don't. Is it even a thing anymore? Does it exist? You know, there's like like orange. Who's still on orange? Oh god, yeah. Oh no, that's 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 not a thing anymore. I don't. There's think. some poor person at home listening to this, being like, "I'm on orange." <laughs> <laughs> no, because I used to be on orange, and I loved it for Orange Wednesdays, where you could get two for one cinema tickets. Oh yeah, that was good. Same with Vodafone, though. But none of that's ever come to fruition for me. I'm always like, I'm still waiting for my Vodafone deals, and they never come through. Yeah, the O2 deals were good for a while and then they just kind of died a death, I think. But you used to be able to get some good stuff on O2 Priority. And then obviously How have you, you got the onto this? I don't know. So, you may be wondering what the show we are covering this week is and wait no more. We are covering Anything Goes! Woohoo! Woo! 
<laughs> which surprisingly, before we discussed that we were doing this episode, I had never seen. I just cannot believe that. Shocking. I know because it's. I, I feel like I'm always very golden age tits and teeth musicals. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. I love that description. Tits and teeth. <laughs> tits and teeth. But yeah, that's always my thing, and I don't know why. It just never happened that I never. I've never seen it. I'm gonna make a very bold statement right now. Anything goes is. You know how like you have a rotating maybe five like you maybe have like five top musicals and it rotates out all the time. Anything yeah. goes has never left that for me. I love really? it. Really? It is one of my favourite shows of all time. Wow. It is like the one, I actually genuinely think if they were like, you're on a desert island, you can have like two albums, that would be one of the albums. And then I'd take oh, like So a... this is quite a special episode then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love this show. I wow. love it. I love it! I'm surprised, Casey, you didn't see it, because it was at the Barbican for a while, right? And then it went on tour? It went, it came, Sutton Foster did a stint, and then that went on tour, Carrie Ellis took over, and then they came back to the Barbican and did, like, a little three-week residency. So it went went on tour, and we actually did have tickets, because me and my friends, we do this little thing where for for our birthdays, we all... I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but we all like choose a show. So like the three, like the four of us, Aww. the three who's not like birthday it isn't, we'll all put together our money <laughs> and like buy our tickets and for the person whose birthday it is. That's just so cute. I made that sound really complicated. Sorry, I've got a bit of brain. No, fog. no, I, I got it. Like you all yeah. chip in for the. We all chip in, yeah. yeah, and like that's and it's just kind of a nice way for us all to get together again, like during the like year because. I know you life. are very sweet. Your like group of friends from uni are it's very, very cute. You guys yeah. are like such a tight four. I know, it's really sweet. And then that's what that's why we we started the tradition at uni and then we just carried it on because it kind of after we left, we stopped it for a little bit and then we were kind of like, Why did we stop that? It's a nice way for us all to see more theatre, see each other more often. Um and like yeah, it's just it was just a really nice little tradition we had, and then it wasn't that big thing of oh what do you get for someone for the birthday because now we just kind of get like some little bits and then the ticket so it's Aww. it's nice. So did you say you had tickets? We had tickets for anything goes. I think it might have been for mine last year for my birthday, and then it was cancelled. Um, I'm not sure why. I had said to Casey that basically listeners. Um, they did a recording of the Sutton Foster uh, revival version that was at the Barbican. Um, and it's actually on BBC iPlayer for UK-based listeners. So go and watch it. It's like a beautiful, like I know that some, I, I understand the whole like film theatre thing, but it, it's one that probably works because it's like visually, this the set doesn't change that much. Like once they're on the boat, they're kind of on the boat. Um, and it's just spoiler a alert. Roar... Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I'm like, <laughs> well, they're on a boat. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. Um, yeah, but go and watch that BBC version. It's it's really well done. Also, like filmed version, filmed version. It's sat in Foster vibes. It's I sat actually in saw. I actually saw her live. I saw her do the real thing in the flesh. And my mum got incredible tickets. I think it was my Christmas present. We were literally front row. And I kid you not, 
it was phenomenal like absolutely incredible she's like an absolute powerhouse i mean obviously i don't have to say that but like she is incredible so just the best yeah. yeah i'm so jealous of you um i saw it when it came back after tour for instance so i saw um carrie alice as reno um and i saw it twice and it was she was excellent she was, was she excellent good reno. she was very good yeah. yeah also i feel like i don't really associate carrie ellis too much with dance um and this really was like a lovely showcase of her because she's a like a brilliant dancer she's absolutely excellent i feel like i just always associate her with like really strong like vocal roles um and uh, on the second time that we went to see her me and my friend annie were just like walking to like the tube afterwards and we just passed her because she was waiting on her taxi and oh I was God. like, oh my God, hi. And like, I'm not one for like, I'd never do stage door because it just, I just think it's a bit, like, I don't know, I just feel uncomfortable. Um, and like, also I'm always like, I'm just going to go to the pub afterwards. It's fun. Don't need to make me arouse. But she was so nice. <laughs> and um, she was like, hey girls, thanks for coming. And I was like, you're amazing. I've been twice now. And she was like, oh, thanks so much. So, Oh my God, I love that. Big up Carrie Ellis. Big up Carrie Ellis. But the, the cast that I saw, I don't know about you, Flo, uh, Flo, I think a lot of them stayed on. I just thought it was such a strong cast. It was. I had Robert Lindsay. Is that the guy played from Moonface? Yes. Um, and then Felicity Kendall. In it as well. Does that ring a bell? No, I saw the Bonnie Langford. Bonnie Langford oh, played Evangeline, the mum. She must have been amazing. She was a bloody hoot. It was just classic, but she was having fun. Bonnie Langford, she was having fun on that stage. Okie dokie. So Anything Goes was originally conceived by producer Vincent Friedley, who also produced the American classics Funny Face, Girl Crazy and Pardon My English. Uh, Friedley was a frequent collaborator of the Gershwins and originally conceived of the idea for Anything Goes when he was living on a boat. Of course he was. Um, hilariously, he was actually hiding on the boat because he owed a lot of money to the bank and they were coming after him. <laughs> um, I tried to find out what, why he owed so much money, but maybe he was just, he was a bad producer probably. Uh, he basically thought it would be a great idea to have a show set on an ocean liner and was so taken by this idea that despite the whole creditor nonsense, he just immediately sourced a writing team and a star, despite the show not having been written yet. So Vinton Friedley had like a kind of different strategy for producing musicals to other producers at the time. Um, he essentially wanted the creative team and the stars to be engaged like right from the very beginning. So for him... His original team was P.G. Wodehouse, which I'm sure you, people will have heard of. He wrote the Jeeves and Worcester series. And Guy Bolton for the book, the magnificent Cole Porter for music and lyrics. And the star was the great Ethel Merman. So bear in mind, Reno Sweeney, who is the kind of main female character of Anything Goes, hadn't even been written yet. But bringing Ethel on at the very beginning means that her style, her stardom and her skills would kind of go on to inform and shape who Reno was. Um, I think they, this has happened in quite a few other shows um, that I've heard of, so I certainly know Candor and Ebb wrote this show after the success of Cabaret called The Act, and it was written for Liza Minnelli, and it is all the songs were written to showcase Liza Minnelli's, like, her vocal range, so, like, every number is belting. <laughs> like, 
and like the whole thing is that it's like a washed up it's kind of like Sally Bowles the musical so she's like a washed up um nightclub singer and then she just does like the entire show talking about like this man that she's lost um but what do you think about that kind of like having a star already in mind before something has even been has even been written like a character has even been written that happened quite a lot i think um they did we talk about that with calamity jane um that like i can't remember who it had been written for calamity jane it wasn't for doris day Uh, it was judy garland oh no it wasn't right calamity jane was for doris day because she was promised and yeah. get your gun, and then she didn't get it. That was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. You're so right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, but Annie, get your gun was written with Judy Garland in mind. In mind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was, yeah, written specifically for. I Alison. love that. I feel like I would do that. I want to. I I would <laughs> pick one of my favorite actresses and go. I'm gonna write a musical just for you, just so you can star in it. <laughs> It's so like Ethel Merman as well. Like Rito Sweeney is such an Ethel Merman character, like that kind of big and brassy. I feel like if they're a huge star, I think it really, really works. I think maybe from a creative point of view, there's only so many times that you can do that. But it's like, actually, <laughs> I feel like we need to tell a story rather than be like, we just really want to showcase you. Um, again, I'm going to go back to my future husband to be Ryan Gosling. If I had to, if I had to write a show, I'd write something for him. Um, but I think after a while, I think I'd find it quite annoying having to be like, it has to be for this person. Um, but yeah, I think I think you guys are right. It was probably of the time to kind of suit. I'm trying to think who I do now, like vocally, who I'd pick now. I mean, I guess you'd. I mean, I guess. But the obvious, someone would probably say, like, Adina Menzel. They'd be like, let's write a show for Adina Menzel. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I feel like Lady Gaga would be a good one. I'd love to Ooh. see a musical written specifically for her. Yeah. Wasn't Well, didn't they have her in mind when they were writing A Star Is Born? Yeah, well, probably. I mean, obviously, it's been, done three, oh. it's been done three times. Yeah. So, they. Pro- I wonder, with A Star Is Born, if they have the star in mind each time. I think so, because I feel like... With the original, with Judy Garland, I think it probably was written for her because she was such a big star at that time and she was probably like the, the go-to girl for things. Then when they redid it in the 70s, I feel like if they hadn't have gone, I feel like they wouldn't have gone, we need to remake A Star Is Born, but who could we put in it? I feel like it was very much, oh my gosh, Barbara Streisand is amazing. Yeah, she's why the it girl of the time. Why don't we do... A Star is Born and put her in it and then I feel like they've done the same thing with Lady Gaga yeah I think it's quite interesting to see how that connects the three of them like to see how Judy Garland connects with like what is it about Judy Garland Barbara Streisand and Lady Gaga that makes them perfect for that part because it weirdly is like when you watch all three of them you're like yeah it completely works and the three of them they're three people that I never would be like they would play the same roles or anything like that. And I know that the iterations are different each time, so it isn't really the same role, but like it's the same like framework, isn't it? Yeah. And it's... Yeah, premise. But when you when you hear them linked, I'm like, yeah, that does make sense for Stars Born. Maybe it's also like a following thing, because all three of them had so, I mean, obviously they all still do have a huge following. But I guess like to play that role, I think you need to have like a huge cult following anyway. And I think it really works when when 
then they're cast as that part because it makes yeah, it, I guess, more believable because well. you're like, oh, yes, it's them. Oh, yes, of course, Lady Gaga. <laughs> well, what I think it kind of does, which is quite interesting, is it it essentially makes the show kind of not conform to like the previous standards. So if we think of like 1930s musical theatre landscape, the traditional thing for kind of like book musicals, fully integrated book musicals, is you've got like two probably like two sets of lovers you have like the comedy couple and like the the main romantic couple and it's quite strange that in anything goes it kind of bucks this trend it weirdly has like three different partnerships going on and they're kind of obviously there's like the main one i guess with like billy and hope which we will kind of come on to more in the synopsis but really all three of them are kind of given like this equal footing and it's quite interesting that reno is reno reno is billed as like the lead but she's actually not in the kind of primary romantic partnership she's in the secondary comedy one and she is not like the ingenue she's this kind of like wise sexy she's kind of been there done that she's definitely not innocent character so i suppose having like ethel merman in mind allows for like that show to kind of not conform in that way and to be a little bit something different Oh, that's interesting, you know, because when I watched it, I was like making links between Anything Goes with Hello Dolly. Because mm. when when it when it all like when, you know, the all the characters are starting to get introduced and things, um I can't remember the two the two guys that are like, We're gonna hide out on the ship and not tell anybody who we are. Those two guys. <laughs> It's like, like John know, and Andy or something like that. Yeah. Like they, and they never really say their names, but yeah. No, yeah. And um, that really reminded me of like, oh, what's the names in Hello Dolly now? The ones that sing, out there, there's a world outside of Yonkers, Barnaby and Cornelius. Like that sort yeah. of Yeah, I suppose. And like, but they're really rarely heard from. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of only have that. It just I think it was just when they all came on and it was just kind of the character tropes that I was seeing. Like Dolly would be your Reno. Mm, sort mm-hmm, of definitely. powerhouse blase. I don't know, it's just something cheeky in there. <laughs> something che- a little bit cheeky. Something a bit cheeky. Well it's not your t- it's your typical leading lady in the sense of like the actresses playing them are your typical leading ladies, but it's not the typical leading lady character of the time. Oh, definitely because, not. No, like yeah. even like obviously you think of like Babe Pajama Game, like she is still quite like wow, like big and brassy and exciting. But she, you, you still have that kind of ingenue feel, don't you? That you feel she's kind of innocent going into like this partnership. With where with Reno, she's basically like I'm a bombshell, baby. Like <laughs> yeah, it's obviously like the show itself, which we'll come into, is like very sexually liberating, but it really holds like no. What's so one of oh god we're moving on too fast but it's just such a good show what is so interesting about it is it places zero importance or kind of like zero villain hero mother whore dichotomy against like the character's sexual like practices so actually quite a lot of the characters are very openly have just been shagging about basically but there's never any sense of that affecting one their future romantic partnerships or whether they're seen as like villains or heroes like it's just it's very sexually liberated in that way where they kind of like Irma for example obviously she talks openly about 
kind of getting off with the sailors and like having multiple partners and stuff like that but it's never used in a way that's like kind of Edoani is sometimes where it's like oh she's silly and young and she's kind of lost a bit of herself and she needs someone to rein her in it's just like oh that's Irma and that's perfectly cool and she still has a boyfriend even though he's a gangster (laughs) yeah yeah there's quite a lot of references because doesn't even hope who is supposed to be that sort of ingenue like more innocent type character one of the opening scenes is that they talk about having sex in the back of the taxi don't they and then so exactly for for 1930s that's pretty unheard of yes madness to say that she's engaged to this other man and her first opening scene is and she very hope very much is like she's like oh blah 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 like it's just (laughs) i find her a bit annoying to be honest I feel like what helps the story though is that because it's so chaotic, the audience just like go along with it. Like I feel like anything, anything goes. Literally anything goes in the show, and people will be like, okay, like they'll just yeah. follow along. Like I think at Absolutely. one point there's a disguise with like a Pomeranian where the Pomeranian's fur is made into a bit be- in, into a beard, and then they're like, oh yeah, that's someone different because he's got a beard now. It's just like it's just so chaotic. So many things happen that you're like what the hell but it just works it really really works yeah and I think you're so right I think even just the title itself basically is like a catch-all for being like any kind of preconceived mindsets that you come into or any kind of formula that you have for other shows at the time like it goes out the window and you do just enter into like quite a random world of expressionism where like everything is just fine and we just as soon as something happens you just automatically like consume it and you're like yep cool great we're moving like that's what's going on like it's just so random and now we're tap dancing like it just yeah just... It, like it's such a well-crafted show i think that it can make you do that it can make it can throw all your, your preconceived notions out the window and you just accept whatever is happening on stage and it, that's probably why it's had such longevity because it's so fun and yeah. you are allowed to have fun with it Anyway, we're moving on very fast. <laughs> but this is honestly, it's the best show ever. Watch that BBC version, guys. The show went through many drafts and rewrites, with the first iteration including plot lines such as bomb threats, shipwrecks, and even a human trafficking storyline on a desert island. I'm glad that very didn't sad. get put in. <laughs> well, wait to see why. Very sadly, a few weeks before the show was due to open in 1934, there was a fire on a passenger ship called the SS Morro Castle, where over 130 passengers and crew died. So there are kind of two stories reported on why the show uh, didn't open in 1934 um, and why the script went under rewrites. One is that Vincent Friedley, the producer, thought that putting the show on just after this horrific accident would be improper or in kind of bad taste um, and asked the writers to change parts of the script that were similar to like the circumstances of the crash. The other is that the original draft was apparently an absolute dumpster fire. Uh, it was just so, so bad. <laughs> um, and they used the accident to kind of like basically allow them time to completely redraft it and come at it again. So the original book writers weren't available. So the director Howard Lindsay and collaborator Russell Cruz took on the job of rewriting uh, an entirely new book. So Ethel Merman served as the basis for Reno Sweeney. The main male and the supporting male characters, Billy Crocker and Moonface Martin, were actually written for the comedy duo William Gaxton and Victor Moore. And of course, we have the wonderful Cole Porter doing music and lyrics. So the show officially debuted at the Alvin Theatre on November 21st, 1934. 
and ran for 420 performances. It was directed by the book racer Howard Lindsay, choreographed by Robert Alton, and it starred Ethel Merman as Rio Sweeney, William Jackson as Billy Crocker, Victor Moore as Boonface Martin, Bettina Hall as Hope Parker, which I was like, Bettina, you never hear of that name anymore. Gorgeous name, Bettina. Um, and Leslie Barry as Lord Evelyn Oakley. The show has been frequently revived over the years and with each revival, small adaptions to the book and score have happened with each new show. And it's definitely worth noting today that we will be specifically talking about the book and the score from the 1987 revival, which has kind of served as the basis for any revival since. And uh, the kind of tours and productions from 2011 onwards use the 1987 revival. And if you don't know what the story is about, let me tell you. So it's a little bit of one of those, it's one of those plots where there's lots that's going on at once. And I'm going to try to explain it in the most succinct way possible, because also it is a comedy and hence why there's so many kind of mistaken identities and lots of kind of plots within plots and plots that don't really lead anywhere. So we kind of open with meeting a young Wall Street broker named Billy, um, who is helping his boss, Whitney, uh, prepare for a trip to London. And he's about to uh, get onto the ship SS American. American? American. You know why I call it American. Um, <laughs> um, Whitney then tells Billy the next morning he has to make a huge sale of their assets, which apparently are sinking. Pardon the pun. Um, the same day, Billy meets his friend, uh, nightclub singer Reno, um, who is leaving the, uh, the, on the same ship which his boss Whitney is leaving on. And cut long story short, Billy ends up jumping onto this boat because he sees a woman who he has fallen in love with called Hope, who is also on the ship at the same time. We learn that Hope is in fact about to be married to an English fiancé named Lord Evelyn Oakley, and Hope has a mother called Evangeline. Billy then uh, chats with Hope on the boat. This is a really like short version of explaining everything that happens. Basically, Billy has a chat with Hope and expresses his love for her. She expresses it back for him. However, she cannot... Um, cannot marry Billy because her family are in huge debt, hence why she's having to marry this English Lord Oakley. We then meet uh, some of my favourite characters, Moonface Martin, who is public enemy number one, uh, joined by his kind of partner, Irma, who is the girlfriend of public enemy number one, Snake Eyes Johnson, who we never meet. However, that's a very important piece of information because Billy who shouldn't be on the boat, then takes Snake Eyes Johnson's um, ID and he uses it and basically disguises himself as that person on the boat. Then as we go through the plot, we learn that Reno is in love with Billy, but Billy is obviously in love with Hope. And then Reno meets Evelyn and she falls in love with him. We then establish the two main relationships within the plot, which is Reno and Evelyn and Billy and Hope. At the end of the plot, Reno and Evelyn end up getting married and Billy and Hope end up getting married and all their financial toil is kind of put to rest because it turns out that the assets that Billy was supposed to be selling actually have gone up in value and 
Whitney, his boss, has made loads of money. So everyone that was complaining about the fact they had no money has now suddenly got lots of money. So that is a very, very short version of the plot. Um, yes, it's definitely was... worth saying that that like the plot is crazy. It's um... there's so many more like little things that happen, and I have not done justice to kind of the smaller parts, i.e. Irma. Like she has some really, really funny bits, and Moonface Martin has some hilarious kind of skits, especially like when he's in jail and he sings a whole song about like a bluebird. Like it's very, very funny. Um, but you'll have to watch the show to find out more. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's definitely, the thing with Anything Goes is they are constantly chasing a gag. So like, whatever is going to be funny, they'll like put their characters in situations that might not even advance the plot or like hinder it in any kind of way to, it, it, it's just there because they're like seeking a gag. So they'll be totally there's a random bit with where Evangeline has a dog on the ship, which just feels <laughs> mental to me anyway. Like I just don't think dogs belong on ships. Um, I don't think it's safe for them. And she's like lost the dog, and obviously her kind of love interest, uh, Mr. Whitney, is like he's wanting to propose to her and he's helping her look for the dog. And then Moonface Martin comes and the dog's like annoying him or something. So then he like where's the i think he throws the dog overboard but then at one point where's the dog as a beard as like part of his disguise so like he, none of this does anything to like you're right the plot, but it's just there for the gag he takes no he takes the fur i thought of the dog and puts it around Billy's face as another disguise because yeah. Billy has all these different disguises. Like he's dressed as a sailor, then he's dressed as like this mysterious man with a beard. Like there's lots of different random disguises to basically cover up the fact that he's Billy. And also, actually, that reminds me. There's a very funny bit where the ship are basically really wanting this uh, kind of like a celebrity. And um, when they find out that there could be this like public enemy number one, Snake Eyes Johnson, who's actually secretly Billy, they have like a whole bit where they're like, oh my God, we've got a celebrity on board. Um, and that's just like, again, such a random, like- It's so funny, like the way story. they do it as well. It's like the, I don't know, the FBI, I think the FBI are on the ship hilariously. And they're <laughs> like, we've got him in custody. It's Moonface Martin, or it's, sorry, it's Snake Eyes Johnson. Take them away, boys. And the captain's like, what would you do that for? It's such an honor. We've got public enemy number one. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's a very, very fun show. Kind of as we were saying, and all these random bits, you just completely buy into it because, because they're moving so far away from the kind of standard of American musicals. But they also just set it up as such a sit. Like in every scene, someone is being silly and having fun there's no serious moments it's just this kind of complete like complete expressionism complete um what's the word it's complete escapism yeah and you've got to think as well like backdrop of that is what we're in 1934 so we're still america's still kind of in the throes of the great depression people don't really don't actually have tickets to you know they don't have the money to buy tickets for these shows but that did really really well on broadway because because I think people wanted that. I think they were fine with just going in and having a complete and utter lovely time without thinking about anything serious and just kind of buying into like the joy, I think, of that show and just anything goes. 
anything goes how many times do you think we're gonna say anything goes throughout this podcast episode i don't know but i feel like if this was like a different show we'd have a shot every single time we said it i think it'd be a very different podcast by the end of it (laughs) (laughs) oh we should do a drunk episode once that would be that would be actually that really reminds me there's um there's a in edinburgh um, they have a shit-faced Shakespeare yeah. where I think, is it one of the cast members gets really, really drunk and then they do the show? Yeah, so it's like every night a different cast member will get drunk and yeah. do the show. I've seen it a couple, it is good. It's good. Is it I mean, good? It's, it, yeah, it's, it's really good. It's really good. They do the, chaotic. The, it's very chaotic. But then half <laughs> of it, you know, as with everything in theatre, like sometimes you're like, oh. Didn't really land. Yeah. or no more just like are they really drunk ah, <laughs> like, or is it acting and scene yeah, yeah which is fine obviously I'm not advocating for a job requiring you to get drunk one day of the week that would be so weird can you imagine like you're imagine seeing like, that in had... like the job centre being like do you enjoy getting drunk <laughs> you can do it one day a week for this job <laughs> so just before we move on to the songs I just wanted to say a few words about the magnificent Cole Porter so Cole Albert Porter was born in, in 1881 to a very well-off family in Indiana. His grandfather was keen for the young Porter to study law, but Cole Porter, practicing his kind of non-conformity from a young age, completely defied his wishes and began a career in music, more specifically composing for musical theatre. So Cole, unlike many of his kind of composing peers at the time, wrote lyrics as well as music. Um, and he also kind of famously never orchestrated any of his shows with his lyrics becoming well known for their pop culture references, witty innuendo, light and cheekiness. His most successful show, Kiss Me Kate, which is fantastic, uh, would go on to win the Tony Award for Best Musical. And many of his songs have gone on to become classic American standards, such as Easy to Love from Anything Goes, um, Night and Day from The Gay Divorcee and I Happen to Like New York from The New Yorkers. Cole served in the French Foreign Legion during World War One, and soon after the war ended, he kind of stayed in Paris in this really fancy apartment where he basically just held like kind of fabulous parties. Um, so these kind of parties, I, I will quote who they said that they were kind of with. Uh, so quote, with much gay and bisexual activity, Italian nobility, cross-dressing, international musicians, and a large surplus of recreational drugs. Um, apart from the drugs, because I don't do drugs, uh, that sounds fucking great. <laughs> Literally. Like, I'm an Italian nobility, gay behaviour, international musicians, and drag. That sounds excellent. <laughs> like, I'm here for all of that. And I'm fine if you want to do drugs. That is your prerogative. But, uh, honestly... I, I to be, imagine being a fly on the wall at one of his Paris parties. I will be high on life. <laughs> I will be very drunk on champagne. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors about Cole's sexuality, but it's kind of largely accepted that he was gay. Um, and he married Linda Lee Thomas, a very rich older divorcee, as a kind of semi lavender marriage. So, um lavender marriages obviously at the time was when kind of two gay people would marry and kind of appear to society to be in a heteronormative relationship whilst obviously both being gay and having relationships outside of the marriage which was kind of agreed but this is really not to say obviously Linda Lee Thomas was not gay that's why I said Sema 
this is really not to say that it was like a sham marriage at all. They genuinely really loved and respected one another. They enjoyed traveling together. And Linda became a kind of confidant for, for Cole throughout his career. Um, Linda had been in an abusive marriage before. And obviously Cole was homosexual in a time where it was illegal. And kind of historians basically kind of say that they just sought kind of safety in one another. Um, and they remained married and devoted to one another until Linda died in 1954. Uh, Cole would go on to kind of have a very odd and successful career. He was kind of constantly creating and writing new musicals, film scores, pop songs, but with varied success across the boards. Um, his like obviously his biggest was was Kiss Me Kate and Anything Goes. But a lot of songs from his kind of lesser known musicals have gone on to become kind of like standard songbook songs. And he's widely regarded as one of the best lyricists um, of that era. He eventually succumbed to kidney failure age 73 in 1964, 10 years after his beloved Linda died. And to be honest, there are a million things I could say about Cole Porter. He's one of my favourite composers, lyricists of all time. I think he brought a sense of like fun to musical theatre that has has been unmatched since um but the most important thing to say is the way that he kind of refused to conform to the kind of heteronormative and pious view uh, of the kind of typical early american musicals um is just absolutely fantastic and he really did lead his work with a sense of mischief debauchery and fun which i am here for <laughs> okay so Talking of the title song, Anything Goes, it is one of my favourites. Um, as I said before, I haven't really seen the show before we started talking about what we we're going to do. Um, but I knew the song because, as we've mentioned, Cole Porter's songs have kind of been scattered about. But I'll talk a little bit about that later. I've got something on that. Um, but Anything Goes is really interesting. I think it's quite ironic because it's sort of talking about how life is now scandalous and like nothing is as it was before. And I find that quite funny because I feel like if the people from the 1930s now saw what life was like in 2023, we could have an Anything Goes like revival part two of like... <laughs> these like updated now- <laughs> lyrics. Yeah. so good. I feel like it would be quite a sad version of Anything Goes. Like, I feel like with everything going on at the moment, it would be like, Anything Goes. Like, <laughs> it would be like, Anything Goes Wrong. <laughs> yeah. Everything Goes. Like, all the little things, like, if bare limbs you like, it's like, oh, shocking. <laughs> you know? <laughs> bare limbs. Stocking. Matron. Well, there is a, I do love the bit that it said, it's like, if young bears you like, which I'm presuming isn't reference to gay bears. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. And then uh, if uh, if grandmama, who's ages 80, in nightclubs is getting sh- uh, getting shady, I think, with gigolos. With gigolos. Goes. I love that line. I know. And there's quite a lot of references to Coke in the musical as well. <laughs> There's so many references to Coke. So it's 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 like he's putting his um little parties in there, which I think is really nice because I think if this musical was to be like set nowadays, Reno would be such an ally. I think she's I, I just love her. I love her. I was standing her when I was watching it. Um and I love that line where she's like, 
if May West you like, if me undressed you like. <laughs> and it's just like... <sighs> it's so, yeah, it's so, um, like, tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, so... it's just, that's what I said before, she's a bit, che- bit cheeky. She would be Deborah Messing. She'd be the Deborah Messing of our time. Yes, yes. Oh, my God, definitely. I love Deborah Messing. If Deborah Messing could sing, bless her, she's not very, she's not oh. very good. I mean, she admits it. She admits it. But so there's quite a lot of references to pop culture in Anything Goes, which I really like, Um, like pop culture of the 1930s. So like Rockefeller, Max Gordon, all these kind of names that would have been big names in 19... I mean, some of them are still big names today, but definitely back in 1930s, it was kind of all the pop culture references, which is very gay. (laughs) Well, pop, pop culture references. Pop, just pop, pop culture, culture references, yeah. <laughs> it's very like... <laughs> that's the thing now, isn't it? The gays have a hold of pop culture references. They always have, I think. I think this is what this proves. They always have. <laughs> and they always will. And can we just say that a lot of sailors is also very um, queer-coded. Very homoerotic. But it is. It is just... It's so interesting hearing your perspective because I was just thought like, yeah. oh, it's nice to see all these sailors. But now <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I'm really like rethinking everything. I'm like, wow, it does mean that. Yeah, like I think, I mean, a lot of the time you write what you know and I feel like you probably would write a character with yourself in mind. And I think yeah. if if it was sort of, it, it wasn't the thing then to be gay and like it was illegal and... and Maybe he's put himself into this character a little bit. But then I suppose you've got to... So we're talking about Cole Porter like for music and lyrics, but he... I mean, obviously, Ethel Merman's is save, is serving as the basis for Reno, and then it would have been the book writers that probably took more of a lead on that. Yeah, true. I'm just thinking more lyrically-wise for um, for Anything Goes. Because he did the all lyrics, right? Yeah. yeah, so I suppose, yeah, I suppose maybe Anything Goes is his, like, war cry for... Yeah, like... I mean, because it's just, it's just purely about hedonism, basically. Yeah. It's basically just saying, do absolutely whatever you want with no regard to anyone else. And obviously, like, that is fun, and we love that. But it is very much like this. I mean, it's a very American view, where it's very siloed, isn't it? It's just like, do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's great. Anything goes. <laughs> um, oh, gosh, that was really bad. But yeah, it's like that kind of very American. Another accent. Writing another accent. Um, Of where it's just kind of like one one focus, I guess. And that is just you and yourself and whatever you want to do. No, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I should have. Sorry, I probably should have been clear on that. I just mean like in that song in specifics. In specifics? God. In that song specifically. I feel like that's kind of him putting all of his maybe wants and desires onto yeah. Reno rather, you know what I mean? Rather than seeing himself as Reno, he's probably putting all of his sort of like desires and the things that he likes and all that kind of things, but Reno's singing it, so it's fine. Yeah, definitely. Like it definitely gives a sense of his, perhaps what he is regarding it as important at that time. Yeah, like with the reference to Bears, which... Is, is very wi- like wildly known to be a term for a specific type of gay man. It wouldn't make sense, really, for Reno to sing that. So I think it is kind of him putting in, himself in 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 this song and being like, "Well, what what do you like?" 
And it's probably, there's an innuendo there that, like, his straight counterpart's writing team would not get that. Yeah, exactly. So that feels like a little, like, something he's just added in. It's like a little secret, isn't it? Yeah. Like With a... young bears, you like. I've always thought that was fascinating whenever I've listened to that. I wonder if, like, you were a young, kind of liberated gay person in Paris. That's like, oh, Cole's just written a musical. I'm going to listen to it. And then you hear your young bears, you're like, oh my god. <laughs> but yes, so um, I just love that song. And I just think there's so many little nitpick bits that you can pick out of it and sort of dissect and things like that. And also, they did it on Glee, which is where I first, <laughs> heard, first heard that song. That's and so became funny. obsessed with it. <laughs> Oh god, that's so good. I don't remember the episode where they did that in Glee. Yeah, it was what it was one of the girls that was I think she she didn't win the Glee project. I think she was on the Glee project. And it's where like Rachel and Kurt go to see one of the rival high schools. Oh. And she's sort of like the girls like, Oh, you must watch our new number and then just go straight into Times of Change. <laughs> oh my god, I need to rewatch that right now. I need to watch that. <laughs> And Rachel Berry loves a little sailor outfit. That's true. She that does, but she wasn't. She wasn't in it. It's, it, it... it's I'm the pretty rival sure club. it's the rival club singing it, and I'm pretty sure that is like her and Kurt are kind of looking at it like with jealous eyes because this girl's like belting out anything goes. All right. So there's one thing that you can say about Cole Porter and anything goes in general. They love a duet. The show is absolutely choking with them. Uh, so we have, honestly, it's crazy. <laughs> Sorry, I love that. I love that you use that that um, that, that word to describe. It's choking, choking with them. It's choking with them. Duets have a chokehold on this musical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has a chokehold on me. Um, so we have All Through the Night, Easy to Love, Friendship, which is one of my faves. It's still lovely. Big up to lovely. Love that song. You're the top. So as we kind of said, where Cole differs from other musical peers of that time is that he really doesn't reserve his best writing or his best duets for his romantic couples. And actually anything goes really differs from early forms of American musicals as it doesn't have the kind of classic romantic couple, comedy couple. Although we might see elements in both, uh, we can see Billy and Hope as the most earnest, the most naive couple. Um, and Reno and Evelyn as kind of the more comedy, the more sexy, the more debaucherous kind. Um, the three couples, so Billy Hope, Reno, Evelyn, Mr. Whitney and Evangeline, really are given perhaps not equal time, but certain kind of equal validity and equal footing as they traverse similar obstacles to, to kind of get to one another. So what I love even more about this kind of odd dynamic, this like lots of couple pairing and this ensemble cast is the importance that Porter gives to kind of platonic relationships as well throughout the show so some of his best songwriting I think in the show comes out of these friendship duets Um, so we have a couple kind of peppered and the one that I'm going to talk about is You're the Top so this is sang just after Reno bumps into Billy on the ship and apologises basically the previous night before they got on the ship Reno says why don't you marry me Billy um and he says no that he's in love with hope she apologizes for this kind of out of the blue proposal and billy talks about hope with her basically lamenting that he doesn't feel like he's good enough for her 
And Rena responds like a true pal, really buoying Billy with all the reasons why she thinks he's the top, with Billy responding in kind. Um, what Cole does in this number, which kind of really no other composers at the time had dared to do at such scale, was use pop culture references in his lyrics completely engaged throughout. Um, so he kind of elevated these numbers from kind of classic beautiful prose about friendship um, and a lot of numbers before that they would have that longevity because they're not tied to a particular time um, to really music of the here and now that really resonated with his audiences so he name dropped celebrities tidbits of gossip products and jingles of the 30s all with a sense of tongues firmly in cheeks um the duet doesn't really do that much to move the story on <laughs> at all, apart from kind of just re-establish Reno and Billy as just friends and allies, with Reno and I advocating on his behalf for his relationship with Hope, despite previously having been in love with him. That's never really explored again. There's no other big jealous bit. She is she might reserve some feelings for for Billy, but really she's she's here for his relationship with, with Hope. Um and what's delivered is a gorgeous, really fun number that is really cleverly written. So the number is very similar to I Can Do Without You, which we covered in our Calamity Jane episode, available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, um, in that it's a variation on the counterpoint duet. So at first, Reno begins with a pre-verse, outlining her aims of the number by saying, At words poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best, instead of getting them off my chest to let them rest unexpressed. I hate parading my serenading as I'll probably miss a bar, but if this ditty is not so prissy, at least it'll tell you how great you are. So essentially she's just saying, it's kind of a weird reason to have a song, which I, I don't mind because it's fun, where she's basically like, I'm shit at words, so let me just tell you a bunch of statements about why I think you're great. So she then moves into the main melody with her first set of kind of convincing statements, the reasons why she thinks Billy is great. So a couple of these are, you're the top, you're the Colosseum, you're the top, you're the Louvre Museum. Billy then responds with a further pre-verse that outlines his aims, which is essentially, I also think you're great. <laughs> um, and he dives into his first set of convincing statements. So his are slightly more interesting, I think, um, at the start bit. You're the top, you're Mahatma Gandhi, you're the top, you're Napoleon Brandy. You're the purple light of a summer night in Spain. You're the National Gallery. You're Garbo Salary. One of my favourite lyrics, you're cellophane. And he really, what I love about that line is he really shouts it. I don't know if you guys have heard, but he goes, you're cellophane. Yeah, like it's this like amazing thing. But I, you know what though, this song, I love this song. But when I first heard it, I was so confused by their relationship. So I was like, does he, does he like her? But I think because it's so like jokey. I guess he is just establishing, like, they're just friends. But I, see, I think it is Cole Porter just giving equal credence and equal think? importance to platonic relationships. Yeah, really. that's true. That is true. Because I think of, like, as Casey was saying, him, I suppose, him bringing his worldviews into numbers. Like, he at that time is with him in a marriage with a woman who they aren't romantically engaged, but they're very much like a partnership and he loves and respects her. So I think it's. I don't know. I think he probably just had a philosophy on like pl platonic and romantic relationships. Being just as important. Set them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as as with I Can Do Without You, they sing separately on the same melody until the end um, and then convinced of each other's greatness, they sing a last kind of rousing um, but if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top, which is just a great lyric, isn't it? 
um, in Gorgeous Harmony. Which also, mm-hmm. wink wink, could be another sneaky little reference in there. I've also thought that, that you're the top, you're the bottom is a reference to, uh, to gay sex. <laughs> How have I never clocked this? I've always been like, baby, you're the bottom. Just being like, in my room being like, what a great line. And now I'm like, no, now I understand. Everything is everything is not what it seems. I, you know what, I, though I had this even as a kid. I had this with like really obvious songs like, Rihanna when she came up with S and M. I had no idea what that meant. And I was there just like S, S, and N. And now I'm like, no, now I know what that word means. So thank you. Thank you for educating Florence. Oh, but I think it, I think it is a total like Cole Porter perhaps speaking to the queer community through anything goes moment where he's just dropping and it's just part of his cheekiness, I think, is he's dropping these little these little like nuggets. Um, for people there's little easter eggs almost for people to pick up on and he's just trying to get in like i honestly think as cheeky as because they used to say that his lyrics were really vulgar so i think this is him trying to be like fine i'll be a bit more uh corporate pg throwing some stuff in (laughs) yeah because it's all things as well that i mean is kind of more recognized now but definitely in the 1930s if you weren't gay you wouldn't have understood the reference of bottom and top or bear or anything like that so I think it's kind of his like cheeky little way of getting them in there without nobody even knowing um and like everything kind of slipping through the net because nobody would have picked up on it yeah completely I think it is just him being like wink wink nudge nudge like if this is for you you'll get it kind of thing yeah it can also be described as a combo of the counterpoint duet and a list song. So a list song is essentially, it does what it says in the tin. It's a song kind of more in standard American musical theatre where you, you just list a bunch of stuff. So like the classic one is uh, Modern Major General from Gilbert and Sullivan's uh, Pirates of Penzance. Like I'm the very modern, I can never remember it, modern... I should remember this because people yeah. used it all the time as like a warm-up. A patter song. Yeah, yeah that yeah. I am the very modern major of a modern major. Oh, I should really yeah, know this. Know. It's a bit like Peter Piper picked a pickle pepper. Like that will always be in my head. And I should know <laughs> modern major general. Modern major general. Yeah, I should know that. <laughs> Maybe I'll learn that for the next episode. Both Billy and Reno essentially just list a lot of things that the others are to are like that make them the top rather than being like you're actually a kind person and you did this for me once they're just like you are at one point they just say you're broccoli which love that maybe broccoli was new at the time it was like a vegetable that you can't get your hands on I don't know but at one point Reno just screams yeah broccoli (laughs) which just brings me so much joy uh what I especially love about this number is now when we listen to it in 2023, the long list of references provided by Billy and Reno not only gives us insight, kind of as Casey was saying, to that pop culture space of the 30s, but also to Porter's own thoughts and his own opinions, um, as he mentions creatives that he highly regards. For example, Billy says, you're Garbo's salary, so that's obviously Greta Garbo, um, and Garbo is mentioned a further three times throughout the show in kind of little random interactions. So clearly, he thought Garbo was worth her salary which I looked up. So guess how much you think in 1934's money um, Greg Garbo reportedly earned for one year. So in 1934 money. 
Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. It's probably like, I'm going to say $10 million. What, in 1934 money? See, this is where I'm going wrong. I have no concept of value of (laughs) anything. I'm like, 100 million, 100 billion. I have no idea. I'm going to say... One one million. 130,000. Casey's Casey's closer. Oh shame. Um, so in nineteen in nineteen thirty four, Greg Garbo reportedly earned four hundred eighty thousand dollars for the year. Wow! And that was a good year of work, which is equivalent now to almost eleven million dollars. See, now I was close with that. Mad, but <laughs> I was close. If I was today, see, I would be in the I'd be in the right ballpark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Um, which is kind of mad because she was the star of her era. I suppose it just goes to show now how, because I I do think Hollywood actors and actresses these days are vastly overpaid. I think it's kind of disgusting that some can earn that much money on a film. Not to say that I don't think actors should be well paid, but I don't think that anyone should earn five million. For I think it's to do with box s- office though. Like a lot of the time, if it's a huge film. Surely, because I was really surprised. Sorry, this is so random. Apparently, the guy who plays John Wick earns like mega bucks, and I've never bucks, mega bucks. Yeah, and I I watched John Wick's the other night, and I was like, it's good, but I wasn't like it's you know phenomenal. But he gets paid so much money to do those movies. I I just think it's a, I really disagree with it. I just don't think it, there's. I think, fine, if everyone in the world was, like, having a lovely time and was being paid really well and no one was living in poverty and no one was dying because they couldn't afford things, I'd be like, sure, then pay them whatever because everyone else is fine. But I just, it is unfathomable to me. So, like, Keanu Reeves, how much did he get paid for John Wick? 15 million. No one needs 15 million for eight months (laughs) worth of work i'm i think that's obscene (laughs) i just but it's mad even without it you can you know you can disagree with that that's just my thoughts i think it's utterly vile but even even without that greg garble's meant to be like the star of our time right and comparatively so that's someone earning 15 million for one film she probably did what like three four films that year so even comparably they are being paid a lot more now yeah, definitely. But I think they're also making a lot more money off of things now. Like, I think in the 1930s, there wouldn't have been things like merch or like soundtracks and, and things like that that they were bringing out. I mean, maybe for a musical, but for movies and things like that, there wouldn't have been sort of press, like press tours like we have today and all the co- sort of collaborations and things. So I think they are probably making more off films today than they would have been. Also, things like yeah, I I don't think they are because I think the market's saturated. I know I most films don't break even. They True. just serve as advertisements for other stuff. You know, I suppose like if you think about that, but with residuals had, and things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but they wouldn't have really like literally, nineteen thirty two. You would have gone and watched a movie, and that would have been it. Like you wouldn't have watched it again. Because. Mm. Whereas July 21st, everyone's got a really tough decision to make. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a yeah, thing, have we... I saw a, quite a funny thing, actually, and it was like every 
every 30 years we're asked we're asked to make a decision and it was like it was like in the paper i don't know if you've seen the the tweet hang fire. no i haven't what was last year's then no no it was like every 30 every 30 every 30 i'm gonna have to find it because it's it it made me really giggle I feel like I'd want to go see Barbie first because I feel like I'd want to be happy before I go see Oppenheimer rather than seeing Oppenheimer and then being like, oh God, the atom bomb and then seeing Barbie and being like, oh God, what am I doing? Like, I feel like yeah, I'd want to see I think that Barbie way. first, then a lovely, delightful lunch with like cocktails. Yeah. Get a bit tipsy. And then Oppenheimer and then you have like maybe a nice little coffee and dessert. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. Sober up. <laughs> oh, oh dear. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna really bother me that. But basically, it was like, night in the seventies. I think Greece and Jaws two came out the same day. Um. Then not long ago, obviously there's Barbie and Oppenheimer. Then one was like, Hocus Pocus, and then something else that was really like, gritty. And it was just kind of this like gritty action type film versus this really campy, like fun movie. And they all came out like every, it might have been 20 years actually, but like every 20 years on the same day. That's so funny. Um, so, uh, Carrie O'Dell actually did a really great article about You're the Top. And they kind of cite just quite a cute little fun fact. So, uh, they say, legend has it that Cole Porter wrote You're the Top, or most of it, whilst on a cruise on the Rhine River. So he pulled his fellow passengers to tell him what they considered the most important in life. From their kind of assorted eclectic answers, Porter fashioned the song A Duet, a sort of call and response in which two characters attempt to one-up each other with creative compliments. By the end of the song, roughly 10 verses, an astonishing 37 persons, places or things have been mentioned making it one of Porter's most densely populated list songs. So, out of all the you're the top statements, which is your favourite? I can start us off with a couple. So, I love the ones that are just referring to really random objects. So, cellophane, broccoli, camembert, just that as like a whole thing. Just be like, you're camembert, because camembert is the best. <laughs> um... I also love in the revival that me and Flo both watched, the guy who was in it does a good... And it's, it's gorgeous, but most of the time when they say, uh, you're the moon over Mae West's shoulder, they just kind of throw it away. So they're like, you're the moon over Mae West's shoulder. This guy really just decided for some reason that this was his moment to like make his voice heard. And he goes, you're the moon <laughs> over Mae West's shoulder. Love a bit of vibrato. It's absolutely gorgeous, but every time I saw it, because I saw the show a couple of times, I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, That's so funny. Your, uh, you know what, though? <laughs> I love that in musical theatre when someone just, like, vibs the hell out of a line and you're like, good for you. You're just like, that is just so, it's so empty. Like, no one asked for it, but you delivered it and it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. It kills me every time because he goes into, like, this beautiful falsehood. He's like... He's just going through it like da, 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 da. and then that one time he's like you're the moon like, it's it. just so good uh, but yeah let me know what is your top 
uh, what is your top, you're the top statements? I really enjoy your a turkey dinner because <laughs> there's just nothing better than like a Christmas dinner. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I, fe- and I feel like that's just such a good compliment because I'm just thinking about like a Sunday dinner with all the trimmings and I'm like, wow, are you better than that? <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think many people are. <laughs> this is a great measurement of like friendship, isn't it? Or like romantic partners. Where you're like, are these people better than like Camembert? Actually, <laughs> like this, I think that's a good way of like seeing if you got good friends. Like, would I describe this person as better than the Tower of Pisa, for example? <laughs> yeah, or the Mona Lisa. <laughs> the Mona Lisa. <laughs> I love. It's actually not one of the. It's not one of the lines where it's like you're the whatever. It's a line near the end where she says. I'm a frightened frog that can find no log to hop. Oh, that is funny. I yeah. love That's, that line. Because it's so cute. And then I think there's another one which is very similar where they say, I'm a toy balloon that's fated soon to pop. Yeah, I like that one. That's I just, I love, it's so clever. Like little images that you're like, oh, I can see that. I like the inversions as well. So like he says, you're Dante's Inferno. I think that's quite cool. Um, I also love just I just don't know why it makes me laugh so much. Um, your Waldorf salad. Yeah. I don't even know what a Waldorf salad was. I think that's quite an American thing. It's like a pear and well. I think it's like pear, walnut, and like maybe blue cheese. See, but I I think I'd be quite offended being compared to a salad. <laughs> I thought the Waldorf salad was based off the hotel. Maybe. I think there's a Waldorf hotel, which is what it was based on. The ingredients, for anyone that wants to know, um, apples, celery, grapes, and nuts in a mayonnaise-based dressing. Oh, I got it completely wrong there. Oh, really? What what did you think it was? I thought it was walnuts, pear, and blue cheese. Close, but no cigar. Um... <laughs> close but no cigar. Um, no, I, I don't think I've ever had a Waldorf salad. You have accidentally had one by mistake, but it kind of sounds gross. Yeah, I'm not gonna, grapes I'm not gonna in a salad freak me out. I can do apples, but with grapes, mayo. Oh, it's a bit. It's giving gross vibes. <laughs> it's giving gross vibes. A little, a little fun fact, um, which I find quite funny because I feel like it's another one of like. It's Cole Porter's sort of slipping in his little innuendos in there. Is the is it the line like you're the the pants on a Roxy Usher? Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, I quite I know quite a lot about the Roxy Ushers because I went through a very big golden age movies phase when I was like sixteen, oh. and the Roxy Ushers were like pretty much it was like military vibes of all of these young men ushers that would wear like tight white pants oh so and like they were they were ushers but it's i can't who is it that says the line i I think it's i think it's reno Reno. yeah reno says that line because she does that weird she goes like roxy yeah 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 (laughs) it's really weird but yeah, so they were all like the the ushers of the time in like theatres, in the Roxy Theatre. 
and it was kind of run like the military because it was like one of the biggest well-known theatres and all the ushers would be like perfectly uniformed but they were known to have like these high top tight white pants and it was like usually like young men oh they should bring that back I wouldn't say no to saying that (laughs) (laughs) but it's just interesting that Cole Porter like like Cole Porter's like oh the pants of a Roxy Usher yeah that's definitely a little a little rudeness a A little bit of rudeness (laughs) I like you're the moon over Mae West's shoulder I've always thought that was really gorgeous um, but I think my fave is just your broccoli. It just kills me. I just think it's so funny to me. Which I do. Your I broccoli. I really enjoy broccoli. So oh, it's great, great vegetable. Seasoned correctly, it's delicious. Oh, I could eat it anyway. Now, one of my favourite songs from Anything Goes is called It's Lovely." Now, if you don't know Anything Goes, you may have heard of It's Lovely" anyway, because it's been covered multiple times by different celebrities, including Robbie Williams, off the top of my head, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, and there was a lovely duet with Lady Gaga as well. Um, Robbie Williams was really random. I didn't realise that he did one, but he did it for the for the It's Lovely." movie because there's so the, there's the movie I don't know if it's called it's lovely maybe it's just called De lovely about cole porter and he's yeah the one I singing it. In it ashley judd i think please yes the yeah yeah so yeah fun fact who did robbie williams sing it with he he just sang it alone i think it was just a solo act where he just sang yeah love that for him i know um so yes, uh, it's one of Cole Porter's most well-known songs, um, and actually it originally um, appeared in his 1936 musical Red Hot and Blue, and it was sung by Ethel Merman and Bob Hope. Um, the song was then later used in the film version of Anything Goes um, in 1956, sung by Donald O'Connor and Mitzi Gaynor, which I think is just interesting that it was obviously a well-known song before it was then later put into Anything Goes. And I think as well, there's because there's a couple of Cole Porter songs that made it into later restorations. I think um, this song, um, You'd Be So Easy to Love. Ah, yes. Are, so I think it was written for Anything Goes, but the guy who was playing Billy was basically like, it's too why, because it is oh, quite really? high. He then like reused it in a different show and then it made its way back in. It's he really clever because... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very clever because then the audience will be familiar with the song and be like, oh, it's this song. And actually, I felt like that when I was watching the musical for the first time. I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know that this song was in this musical. So, yeah, very, very clever. Um, bit of kind of muso stuff, as always. Um, it's written in F major for anyone that wants to know. Um, and the key signature is 4-4. Four, four. So it's it's quite like, it's nothing too complicated, quite simple. F major, it's a happy song. Um, it's essentially the love song between Billy and Hope. Um, and kind of one of the main themes of the song is a lot of copying melodies. So um, Billy kind of starts his kind of opening kind of song and then Hope kind of mirrors him by singing like, I feel a sudden urge to sing the kind of ditty that invokes the spring. Um, And it's just, and then he then later mirrors that by being like, this verse you started seems to me the tin pan thesis of melody. So it's, there's lots of kind of mirroring between each other, which is really lovely. And it's kind of, it's establishing, I guess, that kind of give and take and flirting and it's it's very sweet. Um, 
And I think it's just interesting that Hope's verse that she then sings um, is exactly the same tune as what Billy kind of opens the song with. So she kind of starts with like, me, 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 ray, 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 almost like she's kind of warming herself up. Um, and then she kind of goes into her, the night is young. And it's like, she's basically singing what he sings. And then later on, he then joins her on the last moments of her kind of verse, almost kind of acting as like a call and response to each other. So like she sings one line, he sings the next. Um, and it's kind of almost showing them getting closer and closer together um, and kind of them forming this very intimate kind of relationship. And then all of a sudden there's a dance break, um, which is actually one of my favourite bits of the song. It's this beautiful kind of instrumental bit where it just feels like the music suddenly erupts and they go into this really gorgeous kind of duet dance together. Um, and it really feels like that's them just kind of letting themselves basically just let themselves go and it, I think it's also one of those really beautiful moments in like old school musical theatre where you feel like well of course there'd be a dance break you know like I feel like sometimes in in modern musical theatre you're like oh god another bloody dance whereas like in this it feels like ah oh, it feels like almost like a relief that they go into a dance um, it feels quite earned I think yeah absolutely like definitely they, they're really like kind of giddying each other up and they're having this kind of gorgeous moment where they've like erupted into song because of just what a lovely like flirtatious time they're having and then it's like it's almost like a mirroring isn't it I suppose of like sex or something yeah definitely like, the next step is they're like they're coming out of that and then they're moving together I guess yeah and it is gorgeous because it's such like the other dance in the show is very like we're doing jazz we're doing tap we're doing blah, blah, blah. yeah whereas this is like very fluid very it's just it's it's very Fred Astaire. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think what's really nice about that era of musicals where it kind of had that little the little soft dance breaks in the songs was kind of like we we all kind of know that when people are singing in a musical, it's because the word they no longer have the words to express what they want to say. So then it kind of elevates to a song, yeah. and then it's kind of like in these sort of songs, it's kind of like now the song is not enough. I'm just going to have to show you with my dance. body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, yeah, it's that sort of elevation of how you're trying to express your feelings, which I think is really nice. Yeah, and I think what's also interesting is like the instrumental goes through different stages as well. Like there's a moment where it almost feels like quite tangoey in like the tempo, where it kind of they change it up so that's like a different tactic of them almost like flirting with each other and there's a really lovely bit where the drums suddenly re-enter and there's this really gorgeous like jazz swing tempo that kind of comes back in and like this really sexy like saxophone line that also like starts to come in and it's kind of building this like energy and tempo and this kind of excitement between each other and it's kind of suggesting that like their love is so great for each other that it like it just keeps building and building and then suddenly there's like a slow fade with these kind of chimes. It almost feels like a dream. And if, if anything it does, it's almost kind of like them coming back to like, oh yeah, we're on a boat and you're about to get married. And then he, Billy, then starts singing again. So please be sweet, my chickadee. And when I kiss you, just say to me. And then he says, it's delightful. It's delicious. It's, and he stops and they kiss. And it's just, I think it's such a beautiful moment in the song because it's just like I guess that's their it's them just being like but I love you I don't care that you've got this fiance I don't care that there's all these other things going on and um 
they kiss and there's a big kind of again there's like like almost like a swelling in the music and the trumpet kind of takes over what was Billy's phrase so when he stops kind of his words and they kiss the trumpet continues and it's almost like the music is continuing his trail of thought even though they're kissing and then after they kiss there's actually a moment of silence and like a moment of suspense and then Billy and Hope a cappella sing in harmony um it's still lovely and then the music slowly then rejoins and then can kind of completes the song so it's a really gorgeous mm. end it's really it's so so gorgeous and it kind of it feels like they are so in love with each other but they know that right now in the plot they they can't progress it and it's it's sad because you're like oh but it's so gorgeous and then obviously obviously it's a musical so everything gets resolved um, but yeah, that's why I love this song because it's got so many beautiful moments that you're like, oh, so romantic. Yeah, it's kind of like going back to what we were saying before of like them throwing all of the, these preconceived prejudices out of the window as well because classic, unfortunately, tends to be the way with male attitudes towards women in that time is like once you have had sex with a woman, she decreases in value. Whereas like for Billy, obviously they, they met and they did whatever in the back of the taxi where he's like, what about that five hours? And she says four, which I always think is quite funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it, for, if anything, like he's like, oh my God, I love this woman. Like this, yeah. we've shared this thing and this is beautiful and I love her and I want to marry her. And then if we're following like, I suppose like this train of thought, which um, that perhaps that dance break is is like a visualization of them I don't know coming together again in like an intimate way then like afterwards like what you were describing there is quite nice because I suppose you've had that like climactic moment you were saying where like the drums are kicking in again and then it goes right back down and then it's like this gorgeous like centering or like holding someone after an intimate moment of being like I love you <laughs> like yeah. there's again like he doesn't abandon her no I love that I'm saying that like the bar is so low for men at that time but but like the, it's just like a reinforcement of actually no they really love each other and like this is something that they've shared together and this intimate moments haven't happened between them rather than it's like it's happened to the woman and now he's not bothered yeah I also just love my chickadee I love that so much. It's such a cute nickname. I don't know. I don't think I could cope with someone being like, my chickadee. Really? <laughs> oh, it's cute. I don't think I want my partner to call me chickadee, but it's just like, it's just a cute nickname, I think. Um, and I think like, <laughs> I think the other, <laughs> I think the other thing in this song I really like is that he kind of almost throws like, he throws grammar out the door. He throws like any like um, dictionary out the door. And like, there's a bit where it's like, it's um, it's divine dear, it's divine dear, it's divunderbar, it's de victory, it's divenna, it's divina. It's like, they're both, it's again, it's like, it's very similar to You're the Top where they, the both of them kind of like build on each other. And it's just this like silly ditty that they have between each other. And I love, it's Devunderbar. It's just like, it's so, it's so Devundabar silly. Devunderbar is very, so cheeky. Isn't yeah. It? It's so, he he has like quite an interesting rhyming style really where he's a great, he's a fantastic rhymer, but he does do very cheeky things with his rhymes. Yeah. To make them fit. Like that's why Infernal's Dante is so funny. Yeah. You're the top because he's like, oh, how am I going to make this fit? Yeah. <laughs> like um, but he does quite clever things like that. I have always loved It's Devunderbar. I think that's just... <laughs> it's outrageous it's so yeah. cute 
it's wunderbar. And I must say, actually, because he'll be very upset if I don't mention. So my dad, maybe it's why I love it so much, but because my dad's not really that into musicals, but he loves Anything Goes. Aww. Um, and one, I think he just, he quite likes Cole Porter's attitudes towards things and stuff. And like that kind of lassie, well, I don't think he likes the lassie fairness of it, but like he can appreciate that kind of throwing all the rule books out of the out the window um and like his quite progressive attitudes towards like sex and stuff but it's also because when he was a teacher in north london they uh the school put on anything goes and he was the stage manager and he always is like packed house every night oh, everything rests with that's me. <laughs> so cute packed house every night that's funny. I phoned him the other day and I was like, oh, I'm just doing some research for the podcast. And he was like, oh, what are you doing? I was like, anything goes. And he was like, oh, make sure you tell them about my, <laughs> my, my turn as stage manager. It's sellout <laughs> show. Oh, my goodness. But he always sings, and it always makes me laugh, he always sings It's Still Lovely, but he always gets mixed up with other shows. So he'll sing, like, It's Still Lovely, and then it'll go into, like, um, favourite things. So he's like... Uh, it's delicious. It's still lovely. That he's like, it did it did did it. Oh god! Like, it's different songs. It's like this lovely. weird like mega mix of. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear! I'm always like that is not the song, but you were you're really happy, and that is fun. <laughs> so just following on from that, one of my favorite things about Anything Goes is, as we kind of talked about, like this kind of hedonistic. Uh, joyous attitude that um, that Cole Porter has and the kind of cheekiness in it so like it's a very light show it's a very fun show I don't think it's there to make any great points of anything like we can, obviously we've seen the little tidbits of kind of gay humour and stuff but you know he's not It's there's no agenda really from him but I do think it's quite interesting the attitudes that they have towards crime within the within the show and I do think perhaps that is a little bit of a critique on like the American American justice system or kind of politics at the time. So obviously we have Moonface Martin on board and he is, what was it? Uh, Public enemy number 13, Flo. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> number 13. Um, and the FBI are there chasing them. And then as soon as it's found out like, oh my goodness, we've got Moonface Martin and Snake Eyes on board suddenly obviously the captain's like oh my god we've got celebrities this is so interesting and I quite like that little play I think on like infamous versus famous um I think it's quite cute and then we have blow Gabriel blow which is just an absolutely brilliant number not just for the dance um but basically Reno is she's been she's on board the ship because she's providing the entertainment and they keep kind of hinting at like oh tonight she's gonna like take us to church type thing so it's the evening of her performance and her and the four kind of backup dancers that she has puts on essentially like a sermon um and it really reminds me of rock the boat um so then we're rocking the boat from guys and dolls it really reminds me of that and i think you can see where that inspiration perhaps came in and it covers a lot of the same ground i think a lot of the same critiques um where she basically gets says to everyone in the club like confess your sins like you're all very rich and you're on this boat confess your sins and we have kind of random sins someone says like oh I drink a bit um (laughs) so it's all very like it's all very like rich people problems 
do you know what this really reminds me of? There's there's a Disney movie, and I can't remember if it's Tangled or if it's Pixar and it's Shrek. I'm thinking of, but there's like there's like a pub scene where they go into this pub and then they all start like confessing about stuff they've done. I think done. it's in Shrek Three, is it? Shrek. Not? Villains. You're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what that reminds me of. <laughs> like I don't know why that came into my head. All the villains are like, I've done this, and it's so funny because it's just like it's just so weird. Doesn't Pinocchio, and then isn't it like Pinocchio says something and I can't remember it. He's like... I need to rewatch Shrek. Oh, his nose isn't growing. Yeah, so yeah. like, <laughs> it's like, oh. Yeah, it's where he's like, I'm wearing ladies underwear. And then he <laughs> doesn't oh, grow. And it doesn't grow. <laughs> Bless him. Pinocchio, you can do what you want. That's not a confession, my love. Like, that is absolutely gorgeous. You wear what you want to wear. I think, isn't it someone tells him to say it? Like, they're trying to get his nose to grow. And they're like, say something. And he's like, I don't know, what am I saying? And they're like, <laughs> they're like say that you're wearing women's underwear. And he goes, oh, I'm wearing women's underwear. <laughs> it doesn't grow. And they're like... <laughs> that is such a good gag. Uh, well, yeah, so be- no one, no one's wearing uh, women's underwear. But uh, to be honest, within the confines of anything goes, even at the time, I think that would have been fine. I think it is. Um, uh, Evelyn hilariously has a, a thing where he's like, basically says, oh, I had sex with a woman in a field or something like that when he was living in China. Um, I had plum blossom. Yes, plum blossom. I think. And then doesn't... Um... Um, and everyone's like... Oh, that's fine. Like, no one cares. Doesn't Reno use that as her disguise later or something? She did. Yeah, she comes as Plum Blossom to the wedding of Hope. I know. It's a crazy show, guys. Um, But then basically, once everyone has been kind of, they've had their confession, then she goes into Blow Gabriel Blow, like the full number. And it's like a full dance number. She changes from like these white robes into like this gorgeous, like sexy, like flame leotard. Um, and they basically do like this incredible dance, but like the kind of choreography of the dance, cause it stayed quite similar, I think in vibe, because it's punctuated by like these, these trumpets that are like, boom, 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 <laughs> is it's very like chest driven. So like they're kind of constantly throwing their arms up. Like when they're coming up from their chairs, like they're being like pulled from their chest. And it's like very evocative, I think of like those kind of Baptist churches. Yeah where like people are speaking in tongues and it's like Rena was whipping them up all up into this frenzy. So I know that Cole Porter wasn't, I think he grew up Episcopalian and then he wasn't religious in his life. And to me, this is perhaps, I think, a little bit of a critique on, because obviously around about this time, um, obviously homosexuality is illegal. A lot of it is wrapped up in kind of more Christian-centered thought and regulations. Um, and I think this is his way of being like, everyone's a hypocrite, essentially, because we're, we preach from like the same Bible type thing. Um, but some sins are worse than others kind of thing. So all of these people have repented for these sins and that's fine. But his sin is not, is not able to be repented in the same way. I personally think. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I would love a bit of campy gossip. So Casey, what have you got? <laughs> so... It's hard to find a bit of a bit of a tea on anything goes. I mean, we've sort of covered a lot of the the main points, sort of like the original plot of the show, um, where it was 
which is very interesting. I don't know how they would have got human trafficking and bomb threats into the anything goes we see today. But kind of interesting. I just can't believe that was even on like like a thought. Yeah, why was that even like considered? It's just so rat. It's so like, inappropriate. Was it, st- was it still going to be a comedy? Very strange. I really hope not. <laughs> um, and then obviously all the the little innuendos and nods to sort of gay culture that we have from Cole Porter. But one of my favourite little tidbits of information, and this is only because um, I went through a very big phase where I discovered Madeline Kahn, who is an insanely talented actress, singer, dancer. She's done it all, sort of film, theatre, TV shows, everything. And Cole Porter sort of followed her around her career in everything that she's done, which is why I feel like I've been so familiar with Anything Goes without actually having seen it. Because a brilliant film called What's Up Doc, starring Madeleine Kahn and Barbara Streisand, which, if you know anything about me, just absolutely perfect for my um, my taste. <laughs> but in that, they open up the the they open up the the movie with You're the Top, um, which is a lovely little version. But it's just kind of slipped into the film just randomly. Um, in which Madeleine Kahn stars in that. Then also she was a guest on the Carol Burnett show, which if you don't know anything about that, uh, Carol Burnett was like a, a brilliant, well, she is still, but the show at the time, she was a brilliant, like comedic. They don't really do them anymore. It was sort of like a variety show. A variety show. Yeah, yeah. yeah where it's just basically like sketches. Like the share show. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like sketches, songs, talking to the audience. Judy Garland had a show, I think. Which, can we... Can we please bring those back? Because they are absolutely brilliant. Why don't we have anything? Because they're like part talk show. I mean, I suppose like sat. What is what then later evolved? I think into like Saturday Night Live and stuff. But I, I personally don't really like like the American late night talk show. I just don't find it that funny. Mm-hmm. But I think that's kind of what it's evolved into now. Whereas like those ones had quite a unique charm. Yeah, but, I think because it was it was just everything like, and it was one specific actor or actress that would kind of take over the show they'd have on guest performers like singing um they'd do little skits they'd do sketches where they dressed up as different characters and it was just really nice um and carol burnett had um madeline khan on for an episode in which they sang friendship together and it's a really lovely little duet and then which i didn't know until doing all my little studying for this um, I had seen the clips of it before because I have watched parts of the film, but it's very hard to find. There's a film called At Long Last Love in which it stars Burt Reynolds and Madeline Kahn as the two main characters. Now, I knew that they sang You're the Top and Friendship in this movie, but what I actually found out is that this whole movie is sort of a jukebox musical of all of Cole Porter's songs. So uh, Peter Bogdanovich... Um, the director he wrote it as well and it's kind of like a love letter to Cole Porter and all of his favorites um from his musicals so he sort of wrote this brand new screenplay um starring who else is in it Sybil Shepherd's also in it Eileen Brennan um and obviously Bert, Bert and Madeline and it's just a, a very random story about like these little I think it's like a 
two, it's either two couples or sort of like a love square situation. But all of the songs have come from Cole Porter's musicals. Um, which I just think is really cute. And I also just think it's very random that it's felt like all of these little Cole Porter things have followed Madeline Kahn around her career. Yeah, that's really sweet, that kind of connection. Yeah. Mm. And I'm sure there's I'm sure there's many others out there. Little things I'll have to keep digging. But I just thought that was a cute bit of information. And also a very random jukebox musical based on Cole Porter. Yeah, that's so <laughs> quite a lot of celebrities did like I think um well, who was it? Um uh, I think Ella Fitzgerald, I think, don't quote me if I'm wrong, did like a whole album that was just covering Cole Porter's songs. Oh really? Yeah, and oh. I think quite a few artists have done that. Um Well she definitely did It's the Lovely. Yeah. It's a great yeah, she, she, so Ella Fitzgerald did an entire album, basically. Just it was like I think it was like a Cole Porter songbook thing. Yeah, because her version of De Lovely is quite big, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think. I think. Well, my interesting fact is that um, when I so I wrote a musical about Jack Kerouac and his first wife Edie Parker a couple of years ago that Flo was in. Never heard of it. <laughs> uh, never heard of it. <laughs> Um, and in my research for that, Edie Parker and her autobiography talks about one of the kind of first times that she remembers seeing Jack Kerouak. Um, this is like way before he's famous. At uh, They're both at Columbia University. And he is just coming. She's walking back from work, basically towards her apartment. She's walking through the park, Riverside Park. She sees Jack Kerouak pushing a man in a wheelchair. And that <laughs> that man's Cole Porter. Oh, my God. And there's like I find I've tried to find so much on it, but I I can't find any connection between the two of them. And she's insistent that it was Cole Porter. Um, Rosa, that's your sign to finish your musical. <laughs> I know, I know. You're right. Act two. When when's it when's it happening? So another interesting fact is that Heinz actually used "You're the Top," very popular song, as their jingle in 1985. Oh my god. Which I just think is super cute. Super fun. (laughs) Alright guys, so we clearly all love Anything Goes, but we have come to that time where we're going to talk about our favourite lyrics, which we've kind of been peppering throughout, but also our most skippable song. So on the Anything Goes album, Casey, what are some of your favourite lyrics and what song would you skip? I really love uh, It's friendship, friendship Such the perfect blendship <laughs> I just think that's so cute I just think what a cute little Diddy Love that Yeah that song is just And again it has no reason for really Being in there apart from to be like These guys are friends I know. But it's just so sweet Just the word blendship I think is really Cute and it just makes sense And I get it and I feel like is it an actual word or is he just it's Devundabar? No, literally. It's Devundabar. But what a brilliant way to sort of explain friendship as a blendship like that. <laughs> Skippable song. I'm going between two here. I'm probably going to go with oh, Don't Hate Me, Easy to Love. <laughs> I'm shocked. I know, yeah. I'm slightly, I'm slightly shook at that one. 
You know what? I get where you're coming from because sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm really not in the mood for this. But then when sometimes when you're like, no, I'm going to listen to it, then you're like, oh, it's actually quite a nice song. You have to sometimes just be like, okay, I'm just going to have to listen to it. I think the melody's nicer than the lyrics. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Like I, I like that. I quite like that little soaring. Yeah, I'm just not a... I don't know. If I was if I was reaching for the Anything Goes album, I'm probably I'm gonna go for like the other top Anything Goes, still lovely sort of like the big hitters. Because it's not something that I'm yeah. massively I'm massively familiar with. I just kind of listen to the like the songs are just kind of in my playlist. So mm. listening through didn't really grab my attention. What about you, Flo? What is favourite lyric, skippable song? Well, I feel like I've got lots of favourite lyrics. I think, I mean, I've already kind of given away the Frightened Frog lyric. So I'll give my number two. Um, and I really like, actually, we haven't talked about the song. The song I Get a Kick Out of You, which is such a famous song. Mm. Um, I really like her lyric, some they may go for cocaine. I'm sure that I've took even one sniff. It would bore me terrifically too. Yet I get a kick out of you. I really like that one. Yeah, that is good. I love the references to cocaine. I know that's why I love it. No, no, no. <laughs> I just, I just, I just think it's. <laughs> um, no, I just think it's. I don't know. I just thought it was like even one sniff, it would bore me terrifically too. Um, There's just a cute. And that's got a lovely melody. As well, yeah. That. Like yeah. It's really nice. <laughs> um, and Skippable Song. Okay, so when I saw it on stage, there was no song that I was like, oh, skip. But you know when you're listening to a cast album and it's not in context and you're just like, you know, you're on, you're on the number 27, you're on your way home, you're just listening to some tunes. I would always skip Be Like the Bluebird. And I think it's just like, I know. And I think it's just, it's one of those songs that I'm like, it's funny when you're watching it. Well, like it's it's good when you're watching it, but I feel like to listen to it out of context, it wouldn't be the one that I'm like, oh, play that banger one more time, you know? Yeah. That's what I think about Teller. I love her from You're in Town. I think it's so funny to watch, but I would never be listening to like, that it just by itself, I think. But it, it, the it's really it hard though with this musical to actually pick a song because they are all really, really good. They're all bangers. Yeah. I, I particularly love the crew song. I think it's just, it's so musical theatre. Like, we're all sailors. Yeah. And it's just, it's so brilliant because they all come out in the little sailor costumes running on, running on. And it's just like, I just think it's so funny. I find it so funny watching chorus Is members. that Bon Voyage? Oh yes, that's right. That's what I'm thinking of. Where it's just like it's just so silly, and it's like I think I, I think it's also it's one of my favorite things in theatre is when you see like chorus members almost like pretending to be like military or like pretending to be sailors, and it's like you're so like you're too elegant to be a sailor. Like yeah. that jazz run was just too effortless. Like you can't <laughs> you can't be in the military. It's just it's that brilliant. is like when they're singing that little. Um... There'll always be a lady fair song. Yeah. Where they're like, and when you're a sailor, you don't know you work like a son of a gun. <laughs> but I don't think you're so. You're not working so like a son of a gun, are you? No. You're backstage having a quality street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now this next bit I am extremely excited about. As always, we have the chance to do our own fantasy casting, but this is extra special because if you didn't already know, we have a magic generator and it's so magic that with a touch of a button, Rosa will produce a number of random names that we have to cast. Now, these names could be well-known musical theatre performers, they could be actors, actresses, TV personalities, as well as a few wild cards. So, without further ado, who do we have auditioning today, Rosa? Okay, I'm hitting it. The first one is Ben Stiller. Ooh. That's an interesting That is, that's hard. I feel like if he was a little bit older, he'd be a good moon face. Yeah. Like if it was, he would be totally. Like funny. if it was Jerry Stiller, I, f- I could see Jerry <laughs> yeah. Stiller doing it, and I feel like he's very much like his dad, so I could see that sort of happening. He's too funny to be a Billy. Okay, I'll go uh, next. A bit of a random, Courtney Kardashian, which I could see her doing. I think I could see her doing like a bit of an Irma. I was oh, about to say Irma. But I mean, if you've seen the recent episode of the Kardashians, you will. <laughs> oh, is that the singing the one? The singing one. Oh my God. Not one of those women can sing, but God bless. Um, yeah, Courtney is especially bad though. Re- yeah. Yeah. Really She's bad. Like... Wasn't there an episode also, where and... like someone sang all that jazz or I'm making that up? I think it was Chris. <laughs> Chris did like she was like preparing for like a show where she was going to sing all that jazz. And it was so, it was so bad. And she was like in this dance, but it was like, it was to the point where like, even the choreographer was like watching her, like this is (laughs) bad and all that jazz. Like it was just so flat. Um, But love her. Right. give, Give us one more. Okay. Um, Lynn Manuel Miranda. I'd cast him as Moonface. Yeah. Oh yeah. He would be good actually. He'd be very funny. Yeah. Okay, so we've come to one of the best parts of the show, I think, which is our amazing guest performer slot. Every week, uh, we have a guest performer join us, and they've covered a song from the show that we've been talking about this week, and we do a little interview, learning a bit more about them and a bit more about their thoughts on the show. It is a fantastic opportunity. We have such talented people covering um, all of these amazing songs with their gorgeous voices um, and we get to feature them on our social media. It's just been a really, really great time. So if you are interested, we do have an application form in our link tree, which is just below. Um, So definitely check it out. Um, And this week we are incredibly lucky because we have, she's my best friend in the world, She's also supremely talented, wickedly talented. <laughs> Another <laughs> accent. And <laughs> and she happens to be a bit of a Reno Sweeney. It's Annie Tabner. So my friend Annie, um, Casey and I trained with Annie. She is absolutely fantastic. Biased, but I think she's the very best singer uh, I've ever heard. And she has, for the last two years, been a resident band singer on piano. And she's now on Arcadia. So she's living the cruise life. 
She is Reno Sweeney entertaining the masses. She is Blow Gabriel blowing her way around the world. And we're just so excited to have her here. Unfortunately, what happens with the sea is that you don't get internet um, until you're in port. So as a kind of workaround for her interview, we have recorded our questions and Annie's answering them in a voice note. So if it seems a little bit odd and stilted, that is why. But hopefully through the magic of my editing, you won't notice a thing. Uh, so without further ado, Annie Taverner. Hi, I'm Annie. I'm a cruise ship singer. I graduated in musical theatre and fell into the music scene, ended up on cruise ships, and I absolutely love it. I would like to consider myself as a bit of a Reno Sweeney, but uh, instead of singing the nice jazzy musical theatre stuff that she does, you will hear me doing ACDC and country music a lot of the time. Um, But yeah, really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Annie, which song did you choose to cover and what did you enjoy most about covering it? So I decided to do I Get a Kick Out of You and I did consider doing the title song of Anything Goes or even one of the big ensemble numbers of Blow Gabriel Blow. But my lovely pianist on board, Dave A.D., has played for me when recording this. And it was really lovely to just strip it back and sing something that was a bit more relaxed, a bit more on the jazzy side, rather than belting constantly. And just showing that side of of my voice, which is why I enjoy doing it. Um, I don't get the opportunity to strip it back a lot at work. Um, So I really enjoyed being able to do that. Oh, that's really interesting, Annie. So tell us, what do you like or dislike about Anything Goes? So I love this musical because it was the first show that we got to put on at college when I was 16 and I just started training in musical theatre. I'll be honest with you, my musical theatre knowledge at this point was not very good. If it wasn't Wicked, I probably hadn't heard of it. And it was the most fun. It was such a fun show to put on. I was one of Reno's Little Angels and then Rosa took me to see it in barbican in london a couple of years ago and i just walked out smiling it was such a lovely evening the show was obviously incredible so i think for me the one thing i love about it is the sentimental value of i got to share an amazing night in the west end with one of my best friends but also it was the kickstart of the passion that i discovered ended up making a career out of and annie what is your favorite number from anything goes my favorite song in the show has got to be friendship I do really, really love Blow Gabriel Blow because I love visually watching it with all the dancing. But friendship is just so snappy and funny and it's been done so well every time I've seen it. So definitely friendship. Quick fire question time. What's your favourite musical and why? Company, company, company. I love company. Rosa knows how much I love company. From sitting upstairs in Rosa's living room watching the Neil Patrick Harris version. I absolutely love it. I didn't know about it again. I'm not showing my musical knowledge to be any good when I was younger, am I here? Until Casey's year did it at university. And then I watched the gender bent version on the West End. And I just haven't ever found anything I've loved as much as that show. What do you have coming up that the audience should look out for? So I'm going to stay within the cruise shipping industry for the foreseeable future. 
I just think I have the coolest job in the world, being paid to sing and get to go to some of these places. I'll be doing my second world cruise in January, and yeah, I just think I'm the luckiest person on the planet, so I don't want to give it up anytime soon. And just before you go, Annie, please tell us any burning, unpopular opinions you have on musical theatre. I don't know how unpopular this opinion is regarding people within the industry, regarding, I feel like it's probably more unpopular with my mum's generation, because she, she loves this show I'm about to mention. But I personally believe that Miss Argan is drastically better than Lemmy's, and I wish that Miss Argan had the hype that Lemmy's has, and it was the longest running show on the West End, because, or musical on the West End, because I just love Miss Argan, and I am sick of watching Lemmy's. I don't know, I feel like maybe, I'm a, I'm one of the only people that think this, but I just love Miss Ogon massively. I hope I haven't muffled on too much. Thank you so much for having me. Bye! Bye. Don't forget that you can listen to Annie's cover, which is linked below over on our YouTube cast album, and the applications for our guest performer slot are also linked in our link tree. We've been Sunday on the Pod with... Delightful. Delicious. Delovely. Bye. Bye.